This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5, as we continue in our study of Acts uh, today. And uh, we've come to a point in chapter 5 when we're talking about the opposition that has arisen against the followers of Jesus. Last time we were in chapter 2, and uh, things were, um, were kind of smooth sailing really at that point for the early church. But you knew that wasn't going to last. You know that when the gospel is advancing, that the enemy is always going to attack. That's just how it is. And so really from this point on in Acts, you're going to see the the believers facing opposition, persecution. And there's a message here for us. How do we deal with opposition, whether it comes in the form of persecution or spiritual attacks in other ways. We're going to see that in, in, in chapter 5. And so we are going to, uh, to walk through uh, most of this chapter together. We're going to cover um, every, every verse from 17 through the end of the chapter. So I'm not going to read everything up front. We're just going to walk through it as we go through. So... Um, Friday on a a lonely road in the desert in Egypt, a church bus loaded with believers was making its way to a a place of prayer when ISIS gunmen ambushed them. Apparently they, they boarded the bus and gave people the option to recite the Shahada, the Muslim confession of faith, or lose their lives. And the people on this bus made the choice of the psalmist that we see in Psalm 63, in which the psalmist says that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And they refused to recite the Muslim confession of faith. The gunman opened fire Twenty. Nine were slaughtered, men, women, and children, many others injured. And the press reported very little about this, uh, not even, uh, even a remote degree of, the, of the, the, uh, the publicity that the horrible bombing in Manchester received earlier in the week. Not that the bombing in Manchester received too little coverage. It did not. It was appropriate But when these slaughters of Christians happen in the Middle East, it seems like we barely hear anything about it. But it's happening, and it's happening very, very regularly at this point. You know, in many ways, the the 21st century is proving to be a lot like the 1st century in which the book of Acts was written. And that is to say that the gospel is advancing at a pace really not seen since the first century, but along with that rapid advance of the gospel is an opposition to the gospel. That's incredible and brutal. 
But of course, persecution is really just one form of the opposition that we deal with as believers. Well, we're at war with, uh, with, really, we're attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And ultimately, it is the devil that is our enemy. It's, it's ultimately, it's not ISIS, it's not people that the devil uses. We have a supernatural enemy. Ephesians chapter uh, 6 tells us in verse 12 that ultimately our war is this. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against the evil spirits in the heavenly places. This is spiritual warfare. And as Owen Strand of Midwestern Seminary says, never bring a knife to a gunfight or self-help to spiritual warfare. We're involved in spiritual warfare, little kind of pep talk, motivational sermons that you hear in a lot of churches are just not going to suffice. We need supernatural help. We need God's word. And so we're gonna go to God's word this morning and we're gonna talk about how to deal with spiritual attack and opposition. So what do we see here in chapter five? Let's take a look at the setting first of all. Uh, Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. It's important to recognize that this is not sort of a a widespread opposition to the Jesus movement at this point. A lot of times, anti-Semites try to say that, you know, the Jewish people killed Jesus and the Jewish people were all, they were opposed to the followers of Jesus. That's really not true. It was the leaders, it was the religious leaders, and specifically in this case, the Sadducees that are leading this effort at persecution, and they want to stifle the Jesus movement by putting the leaders of the movement in prison. But as we're going to see, this is going to backfire on them big time. Verses 19 through 21. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. It's interesting in verse 20 that the the Jesus movement is referred to here as the life. At another point in Acts, the followers of Jesus are referred to as the way. And of course, what did Jesus say about himself in John 14, 6? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This week, we've seen examples of death. And of course, ISIS is all about death. They fly the black flag of death. They're a cult of death. But Jesus is about life. He is about abundant life. He says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life 
And Jesus gives eternal life. He says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now notice here that in this incident, God is taking something that was clearly intended for evil and just turning it upside down and using it for good. I mean, clearly they, they intend to stop the movement of Jesus in its tracks by throwing the leaders in jail, God just stands that on its head by doing this miracle, having them released from jail, and which gives even more publicity to the gospel and increases the spread of the gospel. And that's the case always. Any attempt to stop the movement of the gospel is only going to result in its spread. That's what ISIS doesn't understand. That's what the communists in China did not understand, is that anytime that persecution comes, anytime that believers are killed for their faith, ultimately that only serves to embolden believers and enhance the spread of the gospel. And that's what happens here. I mean, this is... Genesis 50, 20, right? This is what Joseph says to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And we need to understand that in our own trials, when we encounter opposition or spiritual attack of, of any kind, we need to understand that a sovereign God is at work for good. And that he takes what the enemy intends for evil and uses it for good in our lives. That's the setting here. Second, we see what happens in the Senate. The Senate, verse 21. It says, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. So the senate here is the Sanhedrin. It's the group of 70, a mixture of Sadducees and Pharisees, and they are the highest ruling body among the Jewish people in Israel. And so they all gather together at this point, and obviously, the word has not gotten to them about what has happened in the prison the night before. Uh, the word of this miracle has not reached them. And here, we really see Luke's humor coming out because he says, beginning in verse 22, when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. <laughs> now, when the captain of the, of the temple, captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed uh, about them, wondering what this would come to. You know, this is kind of like one of those slapstick comedies where, you know, uh, somebody is supposed to walk out on stage and the MC says, and here they are, and no one walks out. <laughs> Here they are, and looks over into the wings. No one's coming. <laughs> well, that's because they were, they were occupied doing something else, which we see in verse 25. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching 
the people. So they put them in this public prison to make an example of them only to find out that God has done this miracle and they're out of prison and now they are standing in the most public place in Jerusalem, the temple, and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Verse 26, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Again, this is not a popular persecution against the followers of Jesus. This is all being led by the, the Sadducees uh, within the Sanhedrin and especially the, the high priest. The, the, the Jesus followers at this point still uh, have favor with the, the majority of the, the people, even if they're not followers of Jesus um, at this point. Verses 27 and 28. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, this demonstrates incredible blindness on the part of the high priest. First of all, he's blind to his own culpability in the crucifixion of Jesus. But not only that, he's blind to the significance of what has happened. I mean, if you were genuinely seeking truth, what would be a normal question to ask after a miracle like this? What happened? And what does this mean? What is the significance of this? Is God really involved in this? But he's not asking any of those questions. And the reason is because he's not genuinely seeking truth. I mean, listen, if you're genuinely seeking truth and you're really ask, you really want to know the truth, I mean, what, what questions should you ask about, about the message of the gospel? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if he really rose from the dead, it means that he's savior, he's king, and you owe him your allegiance. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? But if, you, if you're genuinely seeking truth, I mean, that's the question to ask. And I mean, here is this miracle that has occurred. He had them put into prison to begin with. Now, for some strange reason, they're out of prison. A normal question to ask is, what happened? What's the significance? He's not asking any of that. None of it. And because, it's because he's, he's not genuinely seeking the truth. Verse 29, And Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Now we need to camp out here for a few minutes um, because of things happening with our, in our own culture today. So Romans 13 clearly teaches that the governing authorities have been ordained by God and that we are, to every extent that we can, to submit ourselves to our governing authorities. We are to seek to be model citizens as believers. That means respecting our governing authorities. It means um, obeying the laws of the governing authorities, but that has a limitation. And the limitation is this. When the governing authorities seek to command us to break the commands of God, 
In that case, this is the principle. We must obey God rather than men. And this is highly relevant, even in our own country, because right now, there are individual believers, there are Christian business owners and Christian institutions like colleges and and schools and even churches that are being threatened, that are being bullied, that are being fined and censured in all kinds of ways simply for believing the Bible and seeking to live out with a clean conscience their belief in the truth of Scripture. And my hope and prayer is that things are going to shake out in our culture so that religious liberty will be preserved. This is why Supreme Court and other judicial appointments are just so crucial in our country today. My hope and prayer is that it it will be preserved, but it's very much hanging in the balance. And there are many uh, churches that have already given way. They have already caved in to the culture on these issues. We must never do that. When a clear teaching of the Bible is at stake, that's just not something that we can compromise with. You know, I think back to sort of the, the struggles that our own denomination went through some years ago when the Southern Baptist Convention was sort of in search of its own identity. And of course, our schools were being impacted, our, our seminaries uh, kind of, uh, we, had, we had some people teaching in our schools that were denying essentials of the faith. I mean, not sort of little peripheral uh, things that Bible-believing Christians have different views on. We're talking about essentials. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus and the virgin birth of Jesus and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. I mean, things like that. I mean, things that we just simply cannot compromise on. But yet there were people who wanted us to compromise And at one point, someone approached Dr. Adrian Rogers, who was sort of one of the leaders among those who wanted to stand for the truth of Scripture. In our denomination, they, they, they approached him and they said, Adrian, you know, if you don't compromise, we're never going to get together. And Adrian Rogers replied by saying, I'm willing to compromise about many things, but not the Word of God. So far as getting together is concerned, we don't have to get together. The Southern Baptist Convention, as it is, does not have to survive. I don't have to be pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church. I don't have to be loved. I don't even have to live. But I will not compromise the word of God. Now understand, Adrian Rogers was one of the most gentle people that I've ever met. I mean, everybody who knew him would say, I mean, he was incredibly gentle. He was a gentle man, incredibly humble. He was not the kind of person who enjoyed fighting. He didn't seek to fight. Um, he didn't, you know, he, 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 he would not, he's not a person who would fight about sort of non-essentials or, or, or anything like that. Um, but he just simply knew, listen, this is an issue of either 
we're going to hold to the Bible or we're, we're not. And fortunately for our denomination, uh, those who held to the truth of Scripture eventually carried the day. And our, our, our schools now, our, our, our seminaries are, are fantastic. Um, but that's because men like Adrian Rogers stood on the Word of God. Um, and we have, to, we have to do that. Now think about Martin Luther in, in the Reformation. When, when Luther was asked to deny the gospel that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And there were people who wanted him to, to, to compromise on that. And, you know, Luther at the Diet of Worms in the Reformation famously said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To act against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. Now, a lot of times in movies, Luther is kind of portrayed as sort of getting on his high heels and saying, here I stand, I can do no other. In reality, it wasn't like that at all. In reality, it was more like Luther was just saying, you're asking, I can't do anything else. <laughs> I mean, you're asking me to go where I simply can't go. Now, listen, I mean, as Bible-believing Christians, we should be the most gentle people, the most compassionate people, the most loving people in our culture. That means with your, your, when you're around neighbors who disagree with you and people at work who disagree, it means the way that you uh, conduct yourself on social media and all kinds of things. Listen, we should be the most gentle, humble, loving, compassionate people in our culture as Bible-believing Christians. But when the culture and or the government wants us to, to go where we simply can't go and violate the clear teaching of Scripture, we can't go there. And we need to be willing to suffer the consequences of that. You know, second Timothy 2 and verse 3 says on a day when we're talking about soldiers, soldiers being willing to suffer and die for our country, but all of us as followers of Jesus are commanded to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Peter's willing to do that. Look at what he says beginning in verse 30. He says, he says to the Sanhedrin, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. It's just a classic statement here of the gospel, isn't it? He talks about the crucifixion of Jesus, that Jesus was crucified so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. He talks about the fact that Jesus is now raised and exalted and therefore vindicated as savior, leader, king. And the only question is, is he your savior and your leader and your king? And if not, then you're commanded to turn 
to repent, to turn from trying to live life apart from him as your savior, leader, and king, and turn to him and trust him and receive the forgiveness of sins and the, the eternal life that Jesus gives. Peter just stands up and proclaims it. It's hard to believe this is the same guy who denied Christ to a little girl the night that Jesus was arrested. But it's the same guy. What happened to him? <laughs> Two things, the resurrection and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Jesus was raised Peter had witnessed it. Peter interacted with him over the course of six weeks, interacted with the risen Christ. He knew that Jesus was alive and the Holy Spirit had been poured out and it filled him with a new boldness to proclaim the gospel. But not everybody's gonna like it. Look at the response to Peter's proclamation here in verse 33. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. Are you okay with people wanting to kill you? Well, there are some people who want to kill you. ISIS wants you dead, but we don't kind of wake up every day thinking about ISIS, right? I mean, we know they want to, they love to murder all of us, but it's kind of not what we deal with on a daily basis, at least not here in our country. What we are more likely to deal with is not everybody liking us. Now, if they don't like you because you're acting like a jerk, well, that's a problem, right? You should be troubled by that. But if people don't like you because you stand lovingly for Jesus, you need to be okay with that. <laughs> Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The third thing that we see in these verses is the, the sage. The sage. That, that's, um, that's a man named Gamaliel. Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Who was Gamaliel? Most of us know him as the teacher of Paul, when he was still Saul, a Pharisee. Gamaliel was Paul's mentor. Paul, Paul uh, said with pride that he was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. And he had a right to, be, uh, to, to have pride in that because Gamaliel was an amazing teacher. He was not a Sadducee. He was a, a Pharisee who was held in great honor by the, the people, and Gamaliel, from what we see here, was an honorable man. And Gamaliel is going to urge the, the, the council to be calm in this situation. Now, we know that his, we know that his, his protege, Paul, uh, when he was still Saul, was a hothead, and he wanted to, he was leading in the persecution and even the killing of followers of, of, of Jesus. But his mentor Gamaliel is, is urging them to, to calm down. Notice what he says here in verse uh, 35. He said to them, men of Israel, 
Take care what you are about to do with these men. Gamaliel is saying, slow down. Why? Verses 36 through 39. Gamaliel says to them, for before the days of Thutis rose, before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So in other words, Gamaliel says here, look, he's seen a lot in his life. Gamaliel has seen other movements come and go. And Gamaliel says to them, look, if this is just another one of those movements that is of man, it's going to fall by its own weight. We don't need to be engaged in persecuting these people. We don't need to be riling up all the people in, in Jerusalem. If this is of man, it's not going to last. But... If it is of God, you will not be able to stop this. And furthermore, you yourselves will be found to be opposing God. You see, unlike the high priest, Gamaliel seems to be open to knowing the truth. And it's a measure of the esteem that he was held in by the Sanhedrin that they take his advice. And they let the apostles go, but not before threatening them and beating them. Verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So how did the apostles respond to this beating and to this imprisonment and to these threats? Verses 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now again, we need, to, we need to camp here for a moment. Because as American believers, first of all, we're not used to any kind of persecution. And, and, and what we are very used to is a lot of comfort. Lots and lots of comfort. We don't like to get outside of our comfort zone. And so, as American believers, we say things like the safest place on earth is in the center of God's will. Now, if we mean by that to live as Christ and to die as gain, 
and that if I follow Jesus, that, you know, even if it comes to giving my life, ultimately, I'm going to be safe because I'm going to be with him. If that's what we mean by it, then okay, that's true. But if we mean by that, that following Jesus is going to be easy, that if we follow Jesus, we're always going to be kept safe from persecution or opposition or harm. Friends, that's just simply not true. I mean, we saw it last week in, 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 in Luke 9, 23. I mean, Jesus says to us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And when Jesus spoke those words, crosses were not pieces of jewelry. They were not pieces of architecture in church buildings or on steeples. Crosses were instruments of execution. Jesus here is saying to us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his electric chair daily and follow me. You know, that doesn't mean that as followers of Jesus, you know, that we're seeking out suffering. We don't have to seek it out. It means that if we faithfully follow him, that opposition is going to come. We don't have to seek it out. It's coming. Those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So the issue is, when it comes, how do we deal with that? Well, how did the apostles deal with it? Look at their attitude here in verse 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We need to understand that when we suffer opposition or persecution because of the name of Jesus, that is an honor. It is an honor to be associated with Jesus and to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we should count it all joy. Look at the action that they took in verse 42. It says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They just kept faithfully doing what they had been doing. Because ultimately, they trusted in what a sovereign, loving God was doing. He's at work. Saris are kind of long, flowing garments that women, usually in India, wear. And wedding saris in particular are just known for being especially beautiful, resplendent silver and gold threads, lots of other beautiful colors. Ravi Zacharias tells about one time visiting the town in India that is known for making these beautiful wedding saris. And he expected to find a machine there, but instead what he found was a father and son team. So the father, the great artist, 
was seated on a platform two or three feet above his son. And he was surrounded by these spools of thread. And the father was seated down below him. The son was seated down below him. And the son's only job was to keep his eye on his father. And when the father would nod, the son would simply move the shuttle back and forth. And this went on for hours until this beautiful tapestry that the father was weaving began to emerge. Our, our role is like the son. We're to keep our eye on the father and just be responsive to the father, obedient to his command, his, his prompting. The father, our heavenly father, is the grand designer. He's putting it all together. He's weaving it together. And that's what we have to remember. In, in, in times of opposition, in times of, of, of spiritual attack, in, in, in times of suffering, we have to understand that there's a grand design and that our Father is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him. It's knowing that that keeps us faithful in times of opposition. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are always at work and that during the difficult times that you're at work. Lord, we pray for the church worldwide that is going through such difficult times. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Northern Africa and the Middle East and other places that are, are going through such trials, such suffering. Lord, give them the trust to see that the efforts to, to stop the spread of the gospel are only going to result in its increase. Help us to stay faithful in our own country to, to you, to, uh, to, to, to lovingly but boldly stand for truth always, that, that we might be the beacon of light and love and life that our culture desperately needs to see. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with Jesus and you want to know more, we'd just love to talk with you or pray with you before you go um, today. Be right here at the front um, as we sing our song of invitation. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family as we serve the Lord together and stand for his word uh, together. We would just love uh, to, uh, to welcome you and just let our folks uh, get to know you today. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? 
His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.